Dr. Tracy Parker talks about the lunch counter sit-ins that took place in the early 1960s as part of the civil rights movement. She describes how organizers of these protests hope to bring about change for both African-American consumers and workers in department stores. Her class also compares social activism then and now and explores the role of social media. This class runs about 70 minutes. Okay, so remember last week we discussed African-Americans' women's challenges to Jim Crow on modes of public transportation, right? So we talked about Coretta Scott King and Rosa Parks, and we briefly touched on the integration of schools. Another major site of conflict were lunch counters, restaurants, five and dimes, and department stores. So arguably more than buses and schools, these places were most visibly, most visibly highlighted the contradictions of American democracy, right? Given that American democracy was intricately tied to one's position in the consumer sphere during the 20th century. So just a, you all did the reading, so just a quick question for you. Why do you imagine that such sites of targets, this is a department store from the early 20th century, this is Marshall Field in Chicago, which is now a Macy's, everything is now a Macy's, um, but why do you imagine that these sites are important for for making claims to civil rights. Yeah. Um, it included a lot of like middle class jobs that were considered like higher respectability in society. Yeah. Anyone else? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So kind of going off with the last two um like it was very important to look the part of a citizen, mm-hmm. and so ha- being able to actually spend money in places that like spoke of uh, middle-class respectability and spoke of middle-class citizenship was highly important in actually like um, portraying yourself as a middle-class mm-hmm. citizen. Yeah, absolutely. And on the most, most basic level, think about it. You walk into one of these places that look like museums of consumption, right? They're palaces of some sort. It's important to note that the ceiling here in Tif- is done by Tiffany's. It's in gold. I mean, these are places that are just, in the early 20th century, they are l- places of luxury, right? So now you go into the department store, and what, is it, what does it look like to you? Have, what, have you been in a department store? Just yeah. Okay, because I feel like everybody does shopping online. Yeah, so what does a department store now look like to you? They're like, it's not cool. <laughs> I feel like the idea of it being like a middle class higher end job to be in retail doesn't really fall anymore. Yeah, no, those jobs tend to be of the working class, right? These are jobs that you may, some of you may have had as a high school student, you work part time, right? These are jobs that sort of you use to get to a better job, at, ideally, at some point in time. Yeah, Faye? And I feel like now there's like, the good mall and the shitty mall. Mm-hmm. Like there's literally, you don't even have to interact with certain other like people if you're yeah. like really wealthy, for example. Absolutely, right. Or so what? now we have this idea like this would be a luxury department store, right? And so the, the discount department stores, which I, we briefly talk about in the article, which I'll get to, is something that looks more like a Kmart or a Walmart or JCPenney's, right? These are places where you don't go to buy your Louis Vuittons. Right. The other also thing that's important is that under one roof, 
in these retail institutions that racial discrimination and segregation were glaringly obvious. Right? African Americans in the 20th century, for the better part of the 20th century, weren't allowed to try on clothes. They weren't allowed to return clothes. They had to drink from separate drinking fountains. They were forbidden from eating at store restaurants. In some cases, they're segregated lunch counters. So at the, at the one place that we talked about in the article, W.T. Grants, they had a lunch counter for African Americans that was in the basement and a lunch counter for white Americans that was on the ground floor. Right? They're also, if you're a worker, you're not allowed to be a sales worker or a clerical worker. Right? So you're not permitted to hold these white collar jobs. You're not a manager, you're not a supervisor. These are rights that are reserved for white Americans. Go ahead, Annie, it's okay. Because of this treatment and the visibility of discrimination in these sites of consumption, African Americans protested. They picketed the fronts of the stores, they sat in at lunch counters and restaurants. Some of you probably are familiar with the Greensboro sit-in of 1960, right? And so typically we think of the sit-in campaign as kick-starting the civil rights movement in a way, right? At, at least the students' sit-in movement. But the sit-in campaign or sit-in tactics started well before the 1960s. Historian Benjamin Quarles traced sit-ins back to the Reconstruction era, so that period between 1865 and 1877. The labor movement used sit-ins as a form of protest of labor abuses in the 1930s and 1940s. Sit-ins also were held in urban centers during the 1940s and 1950s. Here on your right, you have Pauli Murray, who helped lead one of the sit-in campaigns at Howard University, of Howard University students at, a local, at local restaurants in DC in 1943. The image on your right next to her is from a sit-in campaign at an Alexandria, Virginia library in the 1930s and 1940s, somewhere around there. And then we have another image of an NAACP protest that also involves sit-ins in the early part of the 20th century. Mary Church Terrell, this, the woman into your right a bit, right? Um, the lighter-skinned black woman, helped find the coordinating committee for the enforcement of DC anti-discrimination laws. You see? And so this is one of the first major sit-in movements that's actually quite successful in desegregating DC restaurants and lunch counters. But as I mentioned, it's the Greensboro sit-in that initiated student sit-in movement in the 1960s. This is actually the department store that Mary Church Terrell was protesting. Um, this was on 7th Avenue in Washington, DC. You can see how massive the department stores are. Right? So we're not talking about your in the mall department store that might have two, two floors, right? This is something that was supposed to be, these were major hubs, these are major sites in American cities for the better 20th and 20th century. And again, these are some of the flyers of Mary Church Terrell's committee. The Greensboro sit-in began on February 1st, 1960. Early that morning, four well-dressed African Americans from North Carolina Agricultural and Techno College, again, 
dressed in respectable clothing, they are exemplars of black respectability, set out to desegregate local restaurants by sitting at lunch counters at Woolworths in Greensboro, North Carolina. Black people were welcome to shop at Woolworths but not permitted to dine at the lunch counter, making this a site a painful reminder of white supremacy. The sit-in was not spontaneous. In fact, it was everything but spontaneous. It was meticulously planned and executed. All four students had been members of the college's NAACP group and members of other youth groups. They were keenly aware of the current changes flowing to the South. <coughs> at 4.30 in the afternoon, the students entered Woolworths and quietly sat at the store's lunch counter. They received no service that day, but sat quietly during their schoolwork until the store closed that day. Word, however, quickly spread. The actions of these men electrified other students, and the next day more students joined them. Soon, black women students from Bennett College and a few white students from the University of North Carolina Women's College joined the protest. Bennett College students, I should add, were integral to this movement. These women served as foot soldiers for the sit-in <coughs> movement by providing picketers, marches, canvassers. They also coordinated carpools and provided replacement protesters. So here are two images of Bennett College students who had actually started doing sit-in campaigns in the 1940s and 50s before the Greensboro sit-in. In this lower picture, they're boycotting a movie theater that refused to show movies that showed white Americans and black Americans as equals. By the fifth day of the Greensboro sit-in, hundreds of young, studious, well-dressed African Americans crowded downtown stores demanding their rights. Soon they received the support of the entire community. The Greensboro sit-in ended on July 25th after boycotted, boycotted stores had lost nearly $200,000, which is approximately $1.7 million today. The store manager at Woolworth asked three black employees of the Greensboro sit-in to change out of their work clothes one day and into street clothes and order a meal at the counter, thereby becoming the first blacks to be served at the store lunch counter. The act received little publicity and fanfare. It becomes a very important moment in spreading these sit-in campaigns throughout the American South. The actions of these students sparked uprisings in Greensboro, but also throughout the state of North Carolina in Raleigh, Durham, Winston-Salem, High Point, and Charlotte. Right? So this brings us to the story of Dorothea Davis, who you all read about. right? And so Dorothea Davis works at a lunch counter W.T. Grants, right? And she works at the black lunch counter, and she's the waitress. And she recalls, if you remember in the reading, that she comes to work one day to see that the sit-in campaign is occurring. And it's at the counter that she starts talking to the students who are sitting in. And so they go in initially thinking that they're going to be fighting for the integration of lunch counters and eateries within this store. Right. W.T. Grants is like a discount department store. Um, do you know what? So, do you know what a discount department store is? Some of you look like no, maybe yes. Like Marshalls, like almost like a Marshalls. But back in the day, they still had lunch counters. So, in my mind, do you guys know a Kmart? Mm -hmm. You know Kmart. So, so when I was a kid, Kmart would have like the blue light specials. You, you could sit and get a meal. I don't know whether they have that anymore, right? No? I think Walmart like has a subway. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, so but the idea is that you could go in and it was sort of a cheaper department store. You could buy your jewelry, you could buy your clothes, you could sit and eat for a little bit. Um, and so Woolworths and WT Grants fall into that category. Right, so she talks about how she comes in one day and she's discussed the sit-ins, the sit-iners come and they tell her, you know, this is why we're sitting in, we want to integrate the lunch counter. And she forges this bond, this alliance with these potential consumers. Right? And she tells them about her work and what she faces as a black woman in this sphere, and they're telling her about their needs. And as a result, what we see is the creation of these worker-consumer alliances right? that become integral to the success of sit-in movements. So you'll recall that as a result, Davis is hired eventually. She's promoted from a waitress to a sales worker, right? And she's put in the lamp department, right? The, the store had stopped selling lamps. She's put in the basement of this store, all the way in the back, by the back of the door, to sell lamps that had been sitting there for who knows how long. And she quickly becomes the top saleswoman, right? Because that worker-consumer alliance continues even after the process of integration. Right? So you've got African-Americans coming down to this lamp department to buy lamps that they don't even need. Right? They're taking their lipsticks from like the makeup counter and they're bringing it down to her so she can check it out. Right? And so she becomes the number one salesperson. I mean, that's just, right? that's, that's something that I think we forget when we think about movements, that the movement doesn't stop once a person's integrated, that it's something that continues. Once she leaves WT Grants and she moves on to a dress shop, all of, her work, all of her customers follow. I mean, you even have men buying dresses for their wives at the, at the dress shop that she's now moved on to. These ideas of working consumer alliances are key to ensuring that integration happens, but it also that it maintains. So you read the article. So, so when you think about it, what were your thoughts? What were your initial thoughts about the idea of working consumer alliances? About, you know, we've been going through a lot of changes on campus, correct? And so when you start thinking about your own activism, what impact may it have had on you? Estelle? Um, it kind of brought up a you have managed to gain momentum in the labor market, and now you're allowed to um, like propel yourself in higher um, with jobs that have higher wages. You now have to be able to spend that money, <laughs> and um, to be limited in that sphere just really doesn't make any. It doesn't allow you to actually have that freedom. It also like talked about in the article, like there was. A correlation between like the type of service you got and who you and the amount of, of black workers that were there. So mm -hmm. as a black consumer, the service you got was directly connected to the amount of black people that were actually providing the service. Um, so it just kind of it, it was a good broadening of that like mm -hmm. um, understanding of how black people really could leverage their economic power mm -hmm. in the consumer sphere, consumer sphere and the workplace. Yeah, absolutely. Others? Yeah. Um, 
What I thought was interesting mm -hmm. is what I immediately thought of was the um, H&M boycott. Once mm -hmm. there was the image of the little boy mm -hmm. and the t-shirt that said um, coolest monkey in the jungle. Mm -hmm. I thought how a lot of you know, working class people, not just black but white, decided to put their money into other stores like Primark or Walmart because yeah. they felt like the brand as a whole wasn't contributing to their cause and even what like Nike is doing with the sports mm -hmm. hijabs. Like, but I never, in the context of the Worker Consumer Alliance, I never thought about like the people the black people or working class people that were working in those stores that were too affected. Yeah. So just kind of like, I guess my question would be how could we use that in a way that isn't just like, okay, for a few months I'm not gonna shop at H&M, but actually build and put money back into black businesses? Absolutely, yeah, do you um, Just to step off of that, because it also, I feel like it inspires as well, because I remember from that a little girl like had a business and she made, I forgot what the t-shirts had said, but it was circled around like melanin and like mm -hmm. embracing your melanin and like she skyrocketed and like celebrities were supporting her. So I feel like even like when situations like that happen, that like it inspires a lot of people and then, yeah. you know, black people get put on the map. So. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, when you, we forget that black purchasing power is enormous in this country, right? This is what civil rights activists got at the time, right? By the point in time, by the mid 20th century, we're talking about a billion dollar or more industry, right? The money that African Americans are spending in the public sphere. The ability to leverage that power to make gains on behalf of workers and consumers is critical. It's also a covert way of trying to make economic gains at a moment in which the labor movement has virtually been dismantled, right? At a moment in which the idea that if you were pro-labor, you were supposed to be a communist, right? That it challenges the very nature of American democracy. And so what's skillful is that we're talking, we're not talking about major leaders right now, right? We're not talking about these, these heavy hitters like King or Malcolm X. We're talking about ordinary folks understanding the work of their economic strength, right? And to make gains for themselves both as workers, right, to be able to see themselves making gains in the workplace that allow them to make more money, that allow them to have more responsibility, to allow them to look more respectable, right? These are respectable jobs in a way. These are clean jobs. Um, and at the same time, they're getting better treatment as consumers. Yes? So I have a question about um, the risk that workers who were under the union had mm -hmm. versus workers that weren't under the union had? Well, so typically, we're talking about in department stores or retail establishments, many of them are not part of a union, or at least a strong union, right? So there are a couple of sites, like Macy's had a really strong union during World War II, the Macy's in Herald Square, New York. Um, there was a fairly strong union at a department store in Chicago called South Center Department Store that was Jewish-owned, but predominantly worked by African-Americans. But for the most part, generally, department store retail workers have not had a strong union. And so, especially if you are not a, you're not a waitress or a sales worker, you're, you're oftentimes neglected even if you are part of a union. And we're also talking about, once you get into the unions, you also have to contend with deep-seated racial divides that exist that make it difficult oftentimes to create interracial alliances in retail unions. 
This isn't to say that it doesn't happen, and it does happen successfully in many industries, but it is a hurdle that has to be overcome. Yeah. Mary? I was kind of surprised, because I mean, we've talked about um, like the black dollar mm -hmm. and like the sit-in movement. I guess part of me, for the first time, wondered why the switch wasn't like to support black-owned businesses mm -hmm. instead. Like, I don't know, I guess, I understand it's about like finding equal rights and like that's not equal access mm -hmm. um, entirely, but like, I feel like it's also an opportunity to give rise to yeah. black-owned businesses. Like, I think that's something we neglect even today, mm -hmm. and I don't know. No, I think you're right. I think so we see this in the 1930s with the don't buy where you can't work movement, right? That the part of part of that movement is not simply to buy at places that are hiring black people in positions of responsibility, right? And upper tier jobs, but also to support black owned businesses, right? That's the other side of the don't buy where you can't work movement in the 1930s. That's not to say that this doesn't go on in the mid 20th century. However, the most, the, arguably the most strongest movements to support black businesses happened during the 19, later part of the 1960s, 1970s in northern urban centers. So these are, these are campaigns that are pushed by Operation Breadbasket um, and later Operation Push by the black, um, black Power Movement. Those efforts try to push for support black businesses. But we also forget that black businesses are just hard to stay in business, right? So there are a number of, in the early 20th century, there are a couple of black department stores, which don't look like, by no means do they look like this. Let's back up. They don't look like this, right? They look more like a, um, it's like a, it might have two floors, right? It's a very, it looks more like what they call a dry goods store, which all of you are looking at me like, I don't know what that is. Um, but it's very bare bones, I'll say that. Right? And so the problem with keeping that open is that you have to get loans from banks. Right? Oftentimes they have white retailer associations that are targeting these black businesses to put them out of business. So it's hard for a lot of these black businesses to stay in business at all. Right? So if they make it a decade, that's a success. Um, but it's an excellent question, Mary, about how often, especially in North Carolina, how many black retail establishments there are that could have been supported in this movement. Yeah, Faye? create union efforts like I was really struck by how tenacious people were and like how much people remained committed and took a lot of risks because I find that when I tried people were unwilling or you know like for good reason like I think that in some ways um, labor is really different in this country and I'm just curious what you as someone who wrote this <laughs> um, think that it might look like now with like globalization and outsourced labor like what are the ways that we can think about like using this framework but maybe applying it to a situation where jobs are really temporary and people aren't given benefits and people aren't given jobs for decades at a time like it seems like if someone was working in a department store it's like with a good job they could have this job for a really long oh, time and I just don't feel like those are some, that's not even something that's accessible, even if you have a degree or if you have like a lot of um, education in this country. Yeah. So. No, I think it's an excellent question. I was trying to think about that. So what you read today is part of a larger project, right? And so in the, 
the epilogue, I racked my brain. It took me a very long time to figure out what that would look like. And you know, we know that, that retail work now is largely the work of minorities. It's largely the work of women and a certain class of women. So we're talking about working class, you know, maybe a high school education. And it's also something that is no longer, it's been de-skilled. So the reason why at this moment there's such a desire to be in sales work, right, is in part because it's still somewhat of a skilled job. So initially when you became, way back when department stores were first founded, so we're talking about the turn of the 20th century, they would have working class white women as the sales workers. But the idea is that you would put on a middle, you would teach them how to put on a middle class facade, right, going back to these issues of respectability. They're taught a little bit of French, so when their customers come in, they can speak a little bit of French to them. Right, it's all about, it's all about the allure of shopping, you know. I mean, how many of you go into the store and you try on something and the lady's like, this looks really nice on you? And you're like, I don't know, right? Like, <laughs> or, but the idea that, like, you know, sometimes you go into, I don't know whether you've ever gone to those departments where they give you a nice cup of tea while you're shopping or a glass of champagne. Well, all of you are underage, so hopefully not a glass of champagne. Um, <laughs> also, so now as a thing, you should go visit like a Bloomingdale's or a Neiman Marcus or a Saks and just go in and experience it. Yeah, even if it's to use a ladies room, it's a very different, yeah, it's just a little different, right? So, but the allure of that makes you feel like you want it. You know what I mean? So what's lost is that. Like that feeling of retail is that that's lost. And people don't go into stores anymore. So there's like a greater detachment from the worker and the consumer. I mean, we buy virtually everything online, it feels like. You know, this is why every year stores are struggling to get people to come in and purchase for their Christmas and Thanksgiving sales. So that's that, that's in part what the problem is. And so I think with globalization, we have to switch our mindset on how we, fo we think about the worker. But I think what's key is to, is to try to strengthen that bond between the consumer and the worker again. Because the reason why sit-in campaigns could work is because the consumer could see itself as the worker and the worker could see itself as the consumer because they're constantly, in, they're, they occupy both places. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you think this still this could still work given the switch of like like racial demographics in the cities versus the country? Like I'm just thinking about like I'm from Boston mm -hmm. and my neighborhood's being gentrified. So the level of like black people even in the inner city, I feel like over the years has declined. Yeah. How would this look if like black people or working class were on the outskirts? I think it's difficult, right? So that's so this is what happens with suburbanization. All of a sudden you have, I mean, most of you probably go to the malls out in the suburbs, not in the middle of downtown centers, right? Well, downtown Boston is different. Downtown, it's like sort of like downtown Chicago. Those are still places that still have their downtown shopping centers. Um, but for the most part, people shop in the suburbs. And once they push them out to the suburbs, what businesses did was they decided, they were, they rearticulated the fact that our primary customer, our primary concern are white middle class women. And as a result, by moving all the way out to the suburbs where oftentimes buses and trains don't have access to, 
they were able to reconsolidate racial discrimination. So all of a sudden, a large contingent of African Americans who may have been able to break through in downtown stores to get jobs are now unable to get to work. And so they can have an all-white workforce again and focus on all-white customers once again. And so I suspect that it might play out similarly with downtown shopping centers, but knowing how mass transit works, at least in cities such as Boston and Chicago, I think that makes it a lot more difficult to physically exclude people, right? No. Mm -hmm. So I was really interested by this idea of <laughs> and how um, racial interests were overriding economic polarizations. And I'm wondering now where kind of white supremacy and just discrimination is so much more hidden. Mm -hmm whether, um, like how it's kind of engineered into economics and um, whether that kind of solidarity would, if you think that kind of solidarity is still possible, like to privilege the racial interests of the group over the class divides because we're getting more and more diversified. Yeah, I know, I think I could see both sides of the argument. I mean, I guess my question is, what do you think, right? Because you technically, the folks who start, start these sit-in campaigns, they're your age, right? Estelle? Um, I don't know, I, I think there's like a linkage between like white supremacy becoming more hidden mm -hmm. and there being like token policies in place that mm -hmm. make it harder almost to create movements like this because it makes it harder to see what the problem is. Yeah. So it's like, I always think of like, I was reading some, um, Something about like how Russia was campaigning like for Putin and how like America's always like what is happening there? We never know what's happening because there's mm -hmm. so much different like um, propaganda that just doesn't correlate with one another that you're just so confused. And I feel like that's almost what's happening in the U.S. Oftentimes when it comes to racial and socioeconomic issues is that there's so much information and propaganda being thrown at you in this very like uncomprehensive form mm -hmm. that. We don't know how to rally around it. Like we once were able to when it was more directly in our faces. And um, in some, some ways, I think that's problematic because that also comes with like your access to education. Yeah. And um, I mean, just also having to put yourself in an inconvenient place to have to go and mm -hmm. research that or inconvenient place to have to go and find black businesses or stuff mm -hmm. like that. So I feel like, in a way, as we diversify more, as we make more progressive gains, mm -hmm. it almost becomes more difficult mm -hmm. to create such movements. Yeah. I mean, think, about it. think about all the commercials you watch, right? I think the Colin Kaepernick thing might be one of, like, an amazing example, right? So I don't know about you, but I was like, like, I'm in love with that whole ad, right? Love that whole ad. And, you, and you're like, oh, I'm gonna, as soon as I saw it, I was like, I'm going to go buy some Nikes. Right? Because you felt, all this, you felt like Nike like, got it. Right? That they were like, y'all say woke all the time. right? So you felt like Nike got it, and so you felt like you want to support him. But then it makes you wonder, right? how many black executives are there at Nike? Right? They, you said they still support the NRA? So you, but so these are those things that you. This is why advertising is like brilliant. So, go ahead, Mary. Go, <laughs> go ahead. It is from my because wasn't there that advertising.
advertisement where the Brotherhood campaign in the mm -hmm. reading yeah. where they did the same. Yeah, no, so, right, so in the article, there's this, that Hex department stores does this brotherhood campaign where they've got a black hand and a white hand shaking hands as if they're for integration and civil rights, but in fact, they're practicing racial discrimination the whole time. So, I mean, I think also, whatever movements happen in the future, you have to start asking yourself, not simply, do you treat your consumers well? Are you, right, so we do this with Chick-fil-A, we do this with different H&M, we do this with a variety of different stores, but I think because of the way, we, don't, we no longer think of ourselves as workers. Right? We, we all think of ourselves as consumers and understand that we want certain service when we go someplace. Right? You want to be waited on nicely, you don't want any attitude, you don't want to be looked over. You know, you, but you forget what the worker goes through. Right? You're all workers. And probably all low-wage workers, right? No one, I don't think anybody's making six figures in this room. If you are, then we need to talk. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes? Um, it wasn't the NRA that they support. It's just like a lot of employees from Nike donate a lot of money to Republicans. Oh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know by her employer to have to cut her hair um, because it was too curly. And when you zoomed in, it was like a just do it Nike. Like, No, I haven't seen this. Yeah, like there was a woman who was like having a back and forth and she was laughing, but the uh, employer was actually very serious and asking her that her hair was just unkempt and mm -hmm. that she would need to trim it down. Um, and so she had posted the video. And a lot of people, you know, obviously were like, we don't know the full side to the story. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm pretty sure that the um, company in which she worked for was yeah. Nike. So, I mean. So it also speaks again to the idea that the corporate corporation might have one policy, but because there's local stores, that also makes a different. That also makes makes a difference. So, for example, when it came down to trying to integrate retail institutions, one store might do it, but that doesn't mean that the store in Charlotte's going to. That, that just because the store in Charlotte integrated means that the one in Greensboro is going to integrate, right? Because of the, it's not under one national hub necessarily, right? The policies of integration are not always uniform. Yeah. So, sorry if this was already answered, but I know your original question kind of mm -hmm. had to do with how race and class, like, yeah. coexisted. Um, I know the. I noticed like the paragraph you wrote about the Howard University students where mm -hmm. some of them would like kind of like they would go to the store when there was no picketing so that you know other black people wouldn't get mad at them. Yeah. So how common was that and like do you think people like that were the kind of people that wanted to disassociate from their like their race as well as their class? Like? I, so I, I, don't, I'm, I, I don't know but what I do know is that people like convenience. Right, and so we are a convenient culture. Everything has to be. So there's an example. There's one woman I think who says, um, "I get my curtains from Hex. Like this is that's the best place to go. That's where I have a charge card. That's where I'm going." Um, but you know, even in Don't Buy Where You Can't Work movements, they would have people who would cross the picket line, and you would have groups of black women who would go around the corner and beat them up for crossing the picket line. Oh. No. Um, 
so I think, I think it is more difficult to get people, everyone in a community to do the same thing all the time. Yeah. And there's going to be those who don't, who don't always follow. They might on maybe on Monday through Friday they do, but they don't always follow or participate in the movement. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We have like this culture of social media that makes it really easy for us to shame each other yeah. into like, like look at all the instances of white women calling the cops on black people for just existing mm -hmm. and very quickly, quickly we've created movements where we identify those women, where we have their faces all over social media. Mm -hmm. And I think with that culture, it could like, I don't know, it could help us in a, in a way to like create solidarity. Yeah, I'm always interested to how you guys use social media part of the movement, right? So I think I talked to you about Rosa Parks and Montgomery Bus Boycott and they sit the, you know, Joanne Robinson sits up all night and she's cranking out these flyers, right? That there's around the creation of the movement, you're all sitting in the same room and you're creating a community. Is that, is there something lost and gained then with social media? So Estelle and then Faye and then Daenerys. Um, with social media, I think there's the good aspect in like, Sometimes I think, like when you think of advocating or any type of social justice movement, it's um, not always accessible to like everyone. You know, it's almost like a luxury to really be able to be an advocate to like get off your job and go and protest mm -hmm. and do all of these things. And the good thing about social media is it does make it more accessible and it does make um, things that are hidden more recognizable. Mm -hmm. I just think that there's a lack of education how to properly use social media to like really use it as this like source um like an actual legitimate um information source and then i don't necessarily know if we take that information or like what happens to that information you just like hear somebody gets fired and you're like i have no idea what the process who what movement actually made that woman get fired was it actually us talking or was is there like a behind the scenes movement that took this um case on and did that so there's just like this disconnect once you put everything out there it's great but it's not very organized yeah it's interesting because what i hear is that there's a level of transparency but then there's a level of like non-transparency like you can't figure out what exactly is going on it's yeah Faye. Um, I just think that there's a lot to be said for people just meeting face to face and forming like real time relationships at yeah. this point in time because without that like you really can't there's a lot of work that I see people trying to do without meeting regularly in person mm -hmm. and it just isn't the same but at the same time like I think like mass call-ins to government mm -hmm. has been something that the left has been doing that's been really helpful like and I'm actually sometimes surprised at how few people it actually takes to call an administration for them to maybe change their policy, yeah. but that's not reported, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not like, for example, recently there was a thing in Virginia where they were trying to not let people enter the visitation of a prison who were wearing tampons, right? They were saying like, you could hide stuff in there, whatever. Mm -hmm. Few hundred people called. I don't think even that many people called. Yeah. I think it was less than 500 and they changed it, which, but there's not, CNN isn't gonna tell you that. So right. I just think it's like this interesting thing like you're saying of like sifting through information mm -hmm. but also not relying only on 
like I think we're just such a social media generation. <laughs> I'm like, we have to talk to each other and like yeah. be bored for a little while yeah. and like say stuff we don't want to hear for yeah. to each other's face. You know, like I don't think I think that there's like a slowness and a boringness and like a like this is such a centralized business. Yeah. Right. And I think like centralizing things from being so scattered is really helpful but yeah, it's yeah we're all, but the problem is if all of our jobs are transient right mm -hmm. like you were just telling us mm -hmm. you have three months of the year where you're not here like yeah. what does that mean for how you're gonna movements are gonna have to utilize social media absolutely. to like uh bridge that i think yeah you're absolutely right yeah denarius you had something i mean they both articulated my thoughts <laughs> i was just gonna bring up how like it helps also because not many, like just not many people are aware of things. And it also sparks like thought because someone might have an idea and you wouldn't even have thought of that. Like this past, mm -hmm. like last night, there was this, like that whole riot for like the baseball. And it's like the thought of like, okay, so all this certain demographic can go riot and like kill each other outside. But a black worker of UMass can't walk to work pissed off mm -hmm. without the cops being called. Yeah. So it's like some people aren't thinking about that kind of stuff, like putting two and two together. So I feel like it just helps in that aspect. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. well, um, just to make a comment that like social media kind of gives you a platform to like speak your opinions. And like if you're not really like a confrontational person, like social media is perfect. You can say whatever you want. No one's going to know who you are. Um, but, but isn't that a problem too? Yes. <laughs> like, doesn't that like be getting a lot of trouble for that? But like, uh -huh. if you think about it also, like, Facebook and like Twitter, they have like, arg like algorithms where you you will see other people's posts who have opinions who have opinions that align with yours. Mm -hmm. So you're not gonna see opposing views. Um, so like when you're like saying well, whatever you have to say, you're only speaking to your friends who think just like you. So it's not like mm -hmm. maybe getting your opinion to the other side might be a little bit you know harder. That's interesting. So in a way that it sort of reinforces a particular community. Right. Someone could do a whole project about like. Yeah. I know. Just one day historians will get that. Far. Like, well, <laughs> that's. I think that might be a little too. 2018 is a little too close for us sometimes. Yeah. Um, I was going to go off of what Marisha talked about, like the incident that you know is continuing to happen and has been happening for the past like two months, yeah. I think it took both social media and like actual groups meeting to elevate that because yeah. when I first heard about it, it was through social media and it was sort of like a screenshot, send this to this person, chain mail type thing. Mm -hmm. And then in my classes, I heard people talking about like, we want to walk, we want to do this. And then all of a sudden, well, not well, what Faye was saying, like it seems all of a sudden, but there was actual real, I don't want to say real work because I don't think like spreading the word through social media shouldn't be considered that, but there were actual things that happened and had to take place in order for us to all come together and then get another social media post about meeting up without anybody knowing about it. And I think like in the That's same work. way, you know, yeah. it's, it's this, I thought that that was pretty cool and I identified that instance with what we were reading about, what you wrote about. Yeah. Like in the same way that we were able to organize silently get to the goals, stick to them, and everybody was affected, but the message was productive. Is, yeah. Like, it takes two. Yeah, I agree with you. Franny? Um, I wanted to add off that, how, like, it was with the connection with the reading and stuff. Mm -hmm. I feel like the only difference is then there needs to be a consistency mm -hmm. because um, back here, like, 
that the sit-ins, it was consistent sit-ins. Mm -hmm. Like you said, it didn't just start in 1960, it started way back mm -hmm. 1950s. So I feel like if we want to see change today, mm -hmm. if in anything, there needs to be that type of consistency. Yeah. Yes, we had a march, but like, what's the next thing? Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, this is why I find the story about Miss Davis to be so fascinating, right? Because not only did she become the first black saleswoman at this store, but then she becomes the number one saleswoman, and then she has a huge following, and they follow her throughout her career, right? That's, that's supporting a movement, right? It's beyond going beyond, okay, so we've, we've got her an office, we've got her a job, and so we can stop picketing. The work is done, the work actually continues. Um, yeah, Estelle? echo that consistency comment. <laughs> um, but to go also back on social media, I think one of the biggest, although social media is so powerful and like has such great potential, and I think that's why it gets targeted so much, um, I think one of the biggest problems too is this level of credibility like that social media seems to be declining in. Like, um, the fact that you meet face to face, you can't really deny what happens there, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, hey, like we just, are looking at each other and we're saying, like, actually, you can't deny that. But in social media, there's so many, like, I don't know the full story. There's, like, we're so scared of technology and we always think that, like, technology is, like, working against us. Mm -hmm. And so it's just, like, I don't know, someone could have changed their words or someone could have changed the scene. Someone cut this out. Someone didn't do this in this area. And so it's always, like, or, like, you know, just, like, to be able to take a full conversation and we cut it down to here, then... Either you're getting one side that makes claims that's not the full conversation, or you're getting one side that makes, or that like one side that's trying to really amp up the conversation mm -hmm. by not adding the full, like, uh, discourse like mm -hmm. between yeah. uh, whatever sides that there were. So it's just like this huge level of distrust when it comes to social media that it's actually giving you like full accurate information that I think could be easily solved by like meeting as a group and having those conversations. Yeah, that's interesting because I'm thinking about last week we had done the Montgomery bus boycott and the fact that everyone met at the Holt Street Baptist Church. Right? Thousands of people came to Holt Street Baptist Church to talk about what happened to Miss Rosa Parks and then how to proceed and go forward. Yeah, I so I, I just it's I mean social media seems to be a way of spreading the word faster. But there's a lack of, I don't know, you tell me, so I'm not, I'm not on social media very often. But there seems to be lack of discourse, right? There's a lot of, I don't, you're looking at me, you're looking at me like, I don't know. Um, I don't talk to anybody on social media, so there you go. <laughs> um, but I don't know, do you think that there's conversations going on? Yeah. Um, I think one of the issues with um, like trying to tackle issues on social media is a lot of the time like it's good because you can voice your opinion mm -hmm. but I feel like a lot of people will like voice their opinion on social media and then they feel heard just like by people interacting with their posts mm -hmm. but just because they're being heard by like a certain group of people doesn't mean they're actually like enacting change mm -hmm. but it kind of feels like it because you're like oh like 50 person like 50 people liked my comment about this like okay, like momentum's growing, but they're not like actually heard by the people who need to hear it. So yeah. I feel like there's a big difference between that and then like getting together and like you can list your demands for something on social media and get a ton of likes, but that's not actually gonna change anything. 
Yeah. Like you have to go do like actual action, have your list of demands, mm -hmm. like, and be consistent, like physically showing up somewhere. With social media, you can spread videos and like, I feel like that whole argument, like, oh, there's not enough, um, there's not enough of the video, like something happened before the video, it's just like an excuse to mm -hmm. not talk about what actually happened in the video because like before, like video cameras and recording everything, it was by like word of mouth and like mm -hmm. writings and stuff, which that can change. Everyone knows that like when you say a story, it changes um, every time you say That's it. True, so yeah. when you have a video like in front of your face, you cannot deny what happened. And so I think since you can't deny what happened, you use that excuse like, oh, you don't know what happened before the video, mm -hmm. but and also like with consistency, I just, sometimes I feel like a lot of people saying like, oh, there's not enough consistency with movements. And I don't think that's true because mm -hmm. when we learn history, we learn about a certain topic and we kind of like have all the list of, you know, protests that happened during that time period. Mm -hmm. So like in our mind, like when we're like faced with it, we feel like there's like more consistency. Mm -hmm. And like now we're living through it. So we're not, we don't have like a timeline of events yeah. and like, what happened at the end of it, mm -hmm. you know? So maybe we might feel that there's not a lot of consistency, mm -hmm. but there's a lot of, you know, advocacy going around. There's yeah. like a lot of protests that are continually happening. And so like, maybe our children's textbooks will put it all together for <laughs> us, and we'll feel like more proud about like what we're doing. But yeah, so, yeah, that's just my, my Mary. Um, like, I do agree that there's some sense of, like, passiveness with social media. Mm -hmm. Like, I have a very particular example in mind. Like, sometimes I'll just be scrolling through. Like, I had a friend who made a coming out post, and he's been out for, like, four, like, four plus years, a while. And, like, I just kind of liked the picture. I looked at the picture, didn't look at the caption, mm -hmm. whatever. And we were talking later, and he was like, oh, yeah, like, my coming out post, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, what? Like, <laughs> he's like, you liked it. And I was like, oh, like, didn't know that. But, and then he was like talking, and I was like, oh, that's strange, like, I don't know, it was strange to me that he made a coming out post now, so far after he mm -hmm. actually came out. And I, he was talking about how, like, there are certain people who follow him on social media, and like, even family and things that don't know he's at, like, out, I guess. Mm -hmm. And so I think there is a disconnect in, like, what people who you, like, immediately talk to, like, know, and mm -hmm. what people on social media might know. And so, like, that disconnect sometimes, I don't know important to acknowledge. Yeah. Um, another thing that I think about when talking about consistency in like doing protests is like with UMass Amherst specifically, when a lot of, when like these racist events happen, there's always like a forum after. Mm -hmm. So it's some sort of meeting and then like nothing really happens after that. Um, and like, I, I mean, from my knowledge of things, there hasn't been like a consistent like resistance against these issues within UMass. Like for example, like what I compared it to was like last semester, Howard University like occupied their administration building for like eight days, mm -hmm. had a list of demands. They got like 11 out of 15 of their demands. Mm -hmm. They like disrupted administration, didn't let any people into the building. Mm -hmm. And like UMass needs to do something like that mm -hmm. rather than just having a forum you and should doing just, advocacy. Right? So like that's right, the onus then is on the student, right? Yeah, it's on the student. Yeah. yeah. So I, Not yeah, that I'm saying you should all disrupt. I mean, <laughs> because like I think a lot of people at UMass talk about it and do advocacy about it. 
but like the administration isn't going to recognize it unless we like disrupt their peace, you know? Yeah. I just want to kind of offset on the university. Like, going off what she was saying, they try to like advocate, advocate for our students to like, oh, like peacefully protest and um, please like protest between like, these hours in this place. But it seems like, like she was saying, the only times things get done is when things get disrupted. I remember when I was a freshman, I'm not sure if some of y'all remember this, but they had that whole divest thing happening yeah. in <laughs> Whitmore. Mm -hmm. And like the students like actually like had their demands met. Mm -hmm. And like people were like getting arrested, people were like getting like gas and things like that. But like at the end of the day they were able to get their demands filled. Yeah. And it's like at least it feels to me that okay, like like to me as the outside of that situation looking in, I'm looking in and being like, okay, like so like this type of protest seems to be the one that's working, but like when we kind of try to protest on universities' rules, nothing really happens because that's what they want you to do. So let me let's go let's swing back a bit to the mid twentieth century, right? And so, what 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 are the demands of these protests? What's be, what's being demanded? separated between um, blacks and whites mm -hmm. and the protesters wanted equal treatment mm -hmm. and I think there was at one point it seemed like to me like the people who ran the diners didn't really get the crux of the issue mm -hmm. because I remember that was at one point they had decided to agree upon giving like the blacks like it's still gonna be separate but like it's gonna be like a better space yeah. and like that's like completely defeats them. Like it's still like Jim Crow, still segregation is not what they were going for at yeah. all. I think it was at the DC process that they gave them instead of space at the lunch counter, a small table that they were supposed to be able to congregate and eat their food at, right? What they're asking for is equal access. What they're asking for is better treatment. What they're asking for in a sense is to be treated as first class citizens, not as second class citizens. I think what's, I always love this quote, so. Let me f recall Ella Baker at the founding of SNCC, right? And so she gives this talk called Bigger Than a Hamburger. And the first part of her speech, she says, the student leadership conference made it crystal clear that current sit-ins and other demonstrations are concerned with something much bigger than a hamburger or even a giant-sized Coke. Whatever may be the difference in approach to their goal, the Negro and white students, North and South, are seeking to rid America of the scourge of racial segregation and discrimination, not only at lunch counters, but in every aspect of life. Right? So it, there is oftentimes, I think we gloss over it, that there's a misconception that it was simply about wanting to eat in the same space. Right? And what we find, especially through the stories of Davis, and some of the stories that involve um, Terrell's committee is that it's about getting being treated as first-class citizens both as a laborer and as a consumer, right? To be able to enter a place and be respected, to be able to try on clothes, to be able to return clothes, to be able to eat, to be able to, once you stand in line, because at one point in time, if you were an African-American and you came into a store and you stood in line, it didn't matter whether you were first. 
they're going to wait on the white people around you. And then they'll get to you. Right? It's the idea that you want to be recognized, that you want to be recognized for your humanity. So, before we go, I want to talk about the class aspect of it. So what's going on with the formation of black class formation at this moment? What work do these sit-ins do for that? Mm -hmm. I mean, they basically solidify a black middle class in this moment because like access to this specific consumption, and I think that you were mentioning this earlier, Estelle, like this idea of like, um, constructing like this image of black middle class respectability and really like this kind of the access to these lunch counters to be seen in these spaces to be seen having equal access to like consumption really kind of like solidified th yeah. this like class yeah. status for black people at the time. Absolutely. I mean what we see is this idea that they're able to obtain some degree of middle class status, which is different than the way, right, I keep saying all semester, it, within the black community, class is structured differently than in the white community, right? And so it's not simply based on income. There's other aspects that make one of the middle class, right? So it's their education. It's their access to certain employment, right? Even if you have a white collar job that makes less than a blue collar worker, you're considered to be part of the black middle class. Right. Mary, you had your hand up. I mean, I think the one thing that in the reading that like struck me was like, I mean, we talk about respectability politics in like every class, but like there was like that one point where they were like, you have to dress a certain way to protest. Yeah. And like, it just, I, mm, like, I understand why in that societal norm it seems so important, but it also just kind of like hurts to have to, pro like it's the same idea of protesting under your like oppressor's ideals. Mm -hmm. And so like that bothers me. Yeah, Julie? I just wonder how much like that changed the way that protests were held. Just like the idea that like you have to be presentable to protest. Mm -hmm. Because still now people are like extremely racist be by the way people dress like class wise or whatever, like baggy shorts, that yeah. kind of thing. If people I mean obviously we can't like as like historians you can't say like if this happened, but like I just wonder like how that could have change things a little bit if they were a little bit less like strong into the idea that you have to be middle class dressed, you have to look middle to upper class. I don't know. I, 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 at this historical moment, right, the idea of wearing your Sunday best allowed you, was supposed to be a sign that you're respectable, that you're deserving of respect, mostly. Through the movement, you see by the time we get to efforts to go down to down south to integrate, to try to um, register black voters, the attire changes. They start wearing more denim to identify with the people they're trying to recruit to work. So clothing certainly does different work in different places. But for the sit-in movement in a downtown space, the downtown space that looks like this, mind you, 
you got dressed to go shopping. I mean, on a, just on a regular day, you got really nicely dressed to go shopping. And so it was fitting in a way that that's what you would wear if you're going to protest in front of a place that has a gold ceiling. Right? Yeah. Were most black people middle, like black middle class at this time? Like, so this is where the, the line between the middle class and the working class is quite fluid, right? So it's hard to, it's hard to say. I would say most are probably of the working, of working class. But there's a desire to attain middle class status, right? So the idea that you could be treated with respect in the workplace and buy and consume middle class goods and be treated as a middle class person in the consumer sphere and then hold a job that's typically considered of the middle class at this moment allowed certain groups of African Americans or African Americans more generally to obtain a modern middle class status with meaning that modern is associated not with industrial work but with more white collar work Right, with, that's more connected to consumer capitalism. Yeah, right. I'm just curious what your thoughts are about how this sets things up for exceptionalism, because I'm just thinking about yeah. the fact that like, I could definitely understand the need for people to be able to access certain spaces, mm -hmm. especially once people have more money in their pockets. But at the same time, I guess it just seems very obvious to me that it would set people up to be like, you are the 10 people who don't get treated like mm -hmm. crap. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I like, see what you're saying. If you, can't, if you can't wear the perfume or you can't buy the nice mm -hmm. thing, then like, do you even still like exist as a human even if these people can sit at the counter? And like, how is that negotiated? Not to say that it's not yeah. a part of a larger structure, but I'm curious if the people who are rallying around these issues were rallying around different issues simultaneously, or if this was like a focused thing that was like a specific yeah. group of people who were directly going to benefit from it. So not. this is typically the people who are rallying around the integration of the consumer sphere are also rallying around other issues, education, voter registration, black politics. They're, they typically have their hand in a variety of different um, issues. What's also important to note is that American consumer culture is just changing rapidly at this moment. So we all think of uh, all of you have what, think about Nikes. You can buy Nikes at the DSW, right? And you can buy Nikes at a Macy's. There's a way in which Nikes have become so accessible, right, with the way that our culture works where you can buy them in discount department stores or you could buy them in a regular department store. You can buy them in a specialty shop like the Nike store that's like downtown Chicago or you could order them off of Amazon. There's a way in which Goods are so mass-produced now that you can purchase them just about anywhere, right? Which means that to a, to a degree, the goods have been democratized, which allows for a wider group of people to purchase goods that make them feel as though they are of the middle class, right? So for the 80s, it would have been my, so my generation would have been buying um, expensive jeans, right? So everybody could buy a pair of jeans, but could you buy Jordash? And all of you are looking at me like, which Jordash? So, like, <laughs> what would be the equivalent? Um, baby fat. Yeah, maybe not. 
But the idea is that not everybody can buy Joe's jeans was a big thing at one point. True religion or something, right? True, okay. There, thank you, Frank. There you go. Um, right, but the idea that certain, right? So now you deal with, what's not, what's different now is what marks the clothes, right? The idea to have a certain label now marks you now that's supposed to be of a certain class. So like the fact that you could get Michael Kors written across your shirt says something, but you could have bought your Michael Kors from the Marshalls or you could have bought it from Bloomingdale's, right? So this is where things get a little more complicated. Estelle, you had your hand up. What is the new definition? If it's so accessible now to gain like the materials that made you appear middle class, mm-hmm. then does the definition of middle class shift? Does it expand then to like include more people, or does it shift to keep that exclusiveness to it um, to something different? Like the- I would argue that in the 20th century, it expands to include more people, right? Now. But that also means that in addition to being able to consume certain goods, you're also of a certain education level, and you're also in a certain job. Like there's certain requirements or characteristics that make one of the black middle class now. That it's not simply about the good, right? That's a large part of it. But it's also about the type of work one has, and the type of work one has is typically dependent on the type of education one has, right? Um, Corrales? Yeah, so I feel like still today people search for that exclusivity, especially like when they're wearing something. Like I know people that definitely don't have the money to like buy eight hundred dollar shoes, but they like still like go through that trouble to like get there, and like so people will like see a certain image of them. And that again goes back to the issue of access. So some of the issues that are going on by some of the with these department store campaigns or retail campaigns is the fact that. A lot, of Af- a lot of stores don't provide African-Americans credit, right? So they, you know, it's difficult to get a charge card. We're also at a moment which, if you're a woman, you can only get credit for a department store under your husband's name. It's not under your name. So what people are searching for or attempting to get is more freedom and liberation within the consumer sphere. Um, because in a way they can make claims to being an individual as well as a human, right? Um, did I see someone else's hand? Yes, scenario. I just wanted to, because this is all reminding me, like the um, conversation about what it, like since everybody has it, like what does it mean anymore? It just reminded me in high school, um, this one girl, she was very preppy, and I forgot what brand it was. It was like Lily Pulitzer or something like that was brought to Target, and she had a melt down <laughs> she was like I can't believe this all these ghetto people are gonna have my brand I'm just like and everybody looked at her like what do you what do you mean <laughs> what do you mean ghetto and she's like no 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 just like ratchet people like <laughs> that don't really wear this like wow. and I'm like oh ratchet okay wow. I just felt like sharing because that oh it reminded me of that Thank like, you for sharing. Like, what is, what do you, like, why is that for you? Like, what is, it means. But there's some status you, behind like, certain names, right? Yeah. I mean, think about it. What are the, sh- the shoes that have the red bottoms? Louis Vuitton. No, it's not those. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Thank you, Wafi. Um, <laughs> I stand corrected. No, but those, right? So 
I'm, 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 I'm about to say this, and I feel like I shouldn't because y'all love her so much. But Nicki Minaj and who's the Cardi B speak about their red bottoms all the time. We almost made it through one class without mentioning them. Um, <laughs> almost. But right, there's some status in the ability to buy those shoes. Right, my heels have black on the bottom. Like they're not. They're not. Right. They're, yeah, there, but there's something you get. You gain some sort of social status. You gain. There's also something psychological behind it, when you're able to purchase and display these things on your person. Right? Faye's hand was up, and then Estelle, and then Mary. I think. fighting like first they had to fight to set up counters mm -hmm. then they had to fight to get people to work there that reflected the population outside then they were fighting to get people in management positions and what I'm thinking about is how hard it would be to get people to not be who are people of color to not be followed in stores now yes right oh. like that yes still isn't like any means addressed on a nationwide level in any part of the country like you could be in the north you could be in a place that's dominated by people of color who have money it doesn't matter so i guess i'm just thinking about like yeah how the consumer like battleground is still really strong which we all know i'm just yeah. thinking about that specific example as being really clear like clearly that citizenship is like absolutely there's a yeah. way to right it's almost as if as we the more we talk about the civil rights movement it's clear that certain gains are being made but the rules are constantly being shifted or circumvented in order to reconsolidate race discrimination right that's what's tricky the, the consumer sphere continues to be a battleground for civil rights in some way, but it's always shifting. So whether it's suburbanization, whether it's through the means of following people around the store, they're all, these are all efforts to keep people of color in second-class citizenship, right? Or to maintain white supremacy. Yeah, Estelle, you had your hand up. This kind of along these lines mm -hmm. of just looking at like, you know, 1920s consumerism versus now mm -hmm. in the black community, um, and kind of looking at how again class setup is and middle class setup is. Like you were talking about how you know black middle class during this time had to do with education, had to do with um, you know just your accessibility to white collar like jobs and how it was very diverse. And it makes me think about what middle class. Um, you know, your middle class status now, and it makes me think about the Nicki Minaj and Cardi B mm -hmm. case and how it is, seems to now be more about the product. Yes. More so than about all your other accesses to information. It's, it's less so about education, your ability to have education or, or anything like that. It's just really about the product. Like the song isn't red bottoms plus Harvard degree plus like, you know, like, it's like, it's like you know, it's not, it's, it's like never about that. It's specifically about this symbolic red bottoms completely like puts you, well, it's not even the middle class, but like completely puts you in a certain class status. Yeah. And that like gives you rights to all levels of respectability and all levels of your, I guess, citizenship in a way because you're getting a service in which other people are not. Um, and so I just think that transition is very interesting. But it also highlights a weird class tension, right? Because there's still, right, there's still parts of the black community that define, to define middle class status as having a, a college degree, right? We understand that a college degree is 
characteristic of those who sit in the middle class. That doesn't mean that they make more money than Cardi B. They probably don't, right? But they get that respectable middle class status in a way that arguably maybe people have a hard time giving to Cardi B. I don't know, but then again, I'm not, a, I'm not an expert on Cardi B. So um, I will see you on Wednesday. So thank you for a good class. You can watch Lectures in History every weekend on American History TV. We take you inside college classrooms to learn about topics ranging from the American Revolution to 9-11. That's Saturday at 8 p.m. and midnight Eastern on C-SPAN 3. Sunday on American Artifacts, we tour the Battle 